every happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White, joined as always by my brother David White. And David, we're back in the podcast chair doing this again. Feels good to be back. Back in the saddle. And it's National Women's History Month in Canada this month. So you've got a story about a Canadian woman to tell us today. I do, indeed. All right. Well, then I think we should just jump to it and uh, I'll ask you. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's June 22nd, 1813, and Lieutenant James Fitzgibbon of the British Army is currently in his camp, but there's a disturbance on the road. His native scouts are bringing in someone to come and talk to him. Okay, so the year is 1813, and we're talking about a British lieutenant What war are we talking about, David? We're talking about the War of 1812. It's a war between the United States and Great Britain. It's happening at the same time as the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, but it's mostly disconnected from them because of the communications technology of the period means that neither side on uh, this side of the Atlantic actually knows what's happening in Europe on a day-to-day basis and the Americans feel that the British have been disrespecting their sovereignty on a number of issues for a long period and that now that they're weak and that Napoleon is winning the Napoleonic Wars or seems to be in 1812 they decide they're going to go to war with Britain to demand a clearer recognition of their sovereignty on issues like the impressment of sailors at sea. And so they invade Canada. So the Americans have invaded Canada. Where is Lieutenant Fitzgibbon's camp set up? He's at a little place called Beaver Dams on the Niagara Peninsula, somewhat south of Hamilton or north of Niagara on the lake. Okay, I know that area well. So he's set up on the beautiful Niagara Peninsula and his native scouts are bringing someone into the camp. Who is it? It's a woman from the town of Niagara. Her name is Laura Secord, and she has information that a American army is coming with the plan of specifically destroying Lieutenant Fitzgibbon's outpost here at Beaver Dams. Well, that must have been quite a shock to Fitzgibbon. Not so much. You see, at the start of 1813, at the start of the campaign season, when the Americans had first invaded near Niagara at Fort George, it had been an enormous shock. But then they'd actually pressed almost all the way up the Niagara Peninsula to Burlington Heights. And there was, you know, it was a well-known fact after that that the war was on and that any given British scouting outpost would be at risk. Things had changed. At what is now the modern city of Hamilton, there was a surprise night attack. Uh, The location was called Stony Creek, so it's known as the Battle of Stony Creek. And the British had pushed the Americans back to Fort George. 
but they weren't strong enough to throw them off of the Niagara Peninsula entirely that summer. So there was a long and extended period where both sides were raiding back and forth with a large no man's land between the British camp, very close, as I said, to the modern city of Hamilton, quite north on the Niagara Peninsula, and the American camp at Fort George, right by the modern city of Niagara-on-the-Lake, there was a very large no-man's land. So Lieutenant Fitzgibbon is in a very dangerous area, and he knows it. Okay, so I guess the question would be, where does Laura Secord, this woman, get her information that the Americans are planning to attack Fitzgibbon at Beaver Dam? Well, sometimes, for historians, it's actually more interesting to admit what we don't know than what we actually do know. Traditionally, when historians talk about Laura Secord, they bring up, or they posit, they suggest that because Mrs. Secord owned a tavern and was running it while American soldiers were living there off the main base at Fort George wasn't large enough to hold the full American army, so many of them were living in the town of Niagara or other towns around that area, living in private homes or places like taverns that were good places to, to have a bed, somewhere to actually sleep. And so generally historians assume that she just overheard this information. Some American soldiers must have been sloppy and told each other about this. Loose lips sink ships, huh? Loose lips sink ships. It's a very plausible suggestion. But if you actually read the primary source documents that Laura Secord herself wrote about her experience... She never tells exactly how she came by this information. She just tells that there were American soldiers living in her home, and then she found out that they were planning to go and eliminate Lieutenant James Fitzgibbon's scouting outpost at Beaver Dams. That is interesting, David, how you mentioned that sometimes it's almost more interesting what we don't know than what we do know. What are these primary source documents she's writing in, like a diary or letters? No, they're all post-war. Laura Secord, I'll give you a spoiler here. Spoiler alert, everyone. She survives the war, but her uh, family has its tavern burnt down when the Americans retreat off the Niagara Peninsula. So she does not have a lot of money in the post-war period because her business, her source of income, has been burnt to the ground, which is not good. So she sends a bunch of petitions to the British government questing initially a war pension for having been a war hero in the War of 1812, basically. And that is where we get these specific written documents from Laura Secord and from Lieutenant Fitzgibbon indicating what happened, which otherwise we wouldn't know. That is interesting. Is there any reason speculated as to why she would leave out how she got the information in these sorts of letters that she's writing to the British government? Well, there's various different speculations. The boring possibility is just that she thought that 
overhearing a couple of American officers talking to each other was so, such a dull explanation, she didn't even bother writing it down. More interestingly, Pierre Burton, the famous Canadian historian, speculates that the reason why she wouldn't have wanted to write this down is that if she'd had a source, she was born and raised in America. She may have had people communicating with her because they knew her from her time as an American citizen. If somebody had told her specifically, but then not been intending to desert the American army and gone back to the U.S. post-war, she might not wanted to have named a name because that might have led to a treason charge in America. Right. That does seem like something that could be a very real possibility. Yeah. So that's a specific detail that's left out, maybe innocently, maybe intentionally. There's some other interesting inferences we can make from looking at the primary source documents with a very, with a focused eye. Such as? One of them is that at the first petition that she sends to the British government, the very first one, she doesn't even mention her husband. She just tells about herself what she did because that's what she's writing about. But later on, by the last petition she sends all the way in 1860, she's very clear and detailed about how her husband was a sergeant in the first Lincoln militia who got wounded at the earlier Battle of Queenston Heights, and she had taken him back to her tav- to their tavern and was uh, helping to helping him to recover, nursing him back to health, but he could not carry this message himself because he was still wounded. Right, so her husband was there and presumably knew this information that his wife knew, but he couldn't be the one to take it to Lieutenant Fitzgibbon because of his injuries. So that tells us something about British and Canadian society closer to 1860, that they were definitely, after her first petition, asking her about why she as a woman specifically had done this thing had gone and warned lieutenant fitzgibbon rather than leaving it up to a man and she had felt the need to explain it but she didn't necessarily feel that need for an explanation when she actually did it or when she first wrote her first petition that's something that comes later that is kind of interesting how it wasn't until afterwards that she felt the need to explain why this was woman's work and why she didn't have her husband do it. So Fitzgibbon, David, he gets this information from Laura Secord at his camp, and he takes her seriously as a woman. He doesn't just brush this off. He absolutely doesn't. Fitzgibbon is an experienced soldier, born in Ireland, served in the ranks initially, fought in Flanders, fought at Copenhagen when the British fought Denmark briefly during the Napoleonic Wars and then got transferred to Upper Canada and took the opportunity to train and become an officer, which is how he ends up here specifically as a lieutenant in the British Army on the Niagara Peninsula. And he's got a lot of experience, as I've said, and possibly a broader view of the world having come up 
from Ireland, from the ranks, these are not the traditional path to being a British officer. He he has a broad enough conception of what a good intelligence source is that when he gets this information, he reacts immediately. What does he do? Well, the bad news for Lieutenant Fitzgibbon is that he's only got 50 regulars, 50 regular soldiers at his outpost. And there's 500 American troops marching to seize it. So he's outnumbered. He's outnumbered big time, like 10 times as many guys. Yes, but remember, I did specify regulars. He's also got native Canadian allies. John Norton, one of the uh, most notable native leaders who fought on the side of the British in the War of 1812, is present with him with a few hundred Iroquois warriors. He's an Iroquois himself, Mohawk specifically. And there's also a second group of native allies under the command of Dominique Ducharne, who's a French-Canadian officer working with the native allies of the British at this time. So... It's hard to give exact numbers for how many native allies he's got, probably around 300, definitely the bulk of his force. And he sends them out first to set up an ambush along the road. So he's going to ambush these Americans before they even get to Beaver Dam. Exactly. If the Americans know where his base is, there's no point fighting them where they expect to fight and can be prepared and take advantage of their greater numbers and greater firepower. The Americans will be bringing along two small field pieces, cannons. It's not clear whether Fitzgibbon knew that from Laura Secord's testimony or not, but either way, he knows they might have greater firepower. He wants to hit them where they don't expect it on his own terms. And how does the ambush go? The ambush goes very well we don't know very many of the details because post-war john norton and dominique ducharne will get into a debate over which of the two groups of natives who were present at the ambush were really fighting were the more important factor in the victory but we do know that by the time that james fitzgibbon arrives with his 50 regulars on the field, the American defense has already collapsed so badly that he doesn't even have to fire a shot. The Americans just immediately surrender. Wow, that's a huge victory for the British, and all because of this information they got from Laura Secord? It is, and it's even a bigger victory than it might sound. 500 guys is not nothing, obviously. But both symbolically and practically, the fact that the Americans can't drive in one specific, not very large British scouting outpost that's been annoying them really demonstrates that they're under siege now. After this point, they can't claim to be controlling half the Niagara Peninsula just because the main British army is still relatively far north. Everyone knows that they're under siege. One of the effects that this has 
is that on July 7, 1813, General Dearborn, commanding all the American troops in the Niagara Peninsula, is recalled back to Washington. So this seemingly small victory for the British ends up having some huge ramifications in terms of the overall war. Exactly. For the Americans, this demonstration that their initially successful invasion of Fort George has bogged down and is now just drawing in troops and resources that aren't achieving anything, they're just trapped in this fort, is demoralizing. It also leads the Americans to begin looking for scapegoats. And one of the interesting ones who crops up directly related to this battle at Beaver Dams is a guy called Serenius Chapin. And what role did Serenius play, David? So Serenius Chapin had been an American militia officer. He was a doctor, actually, with before the war and the early part of the war, a good reputation along the American frontier. He'd been, become a militia officer when the war broke out, and he'd gained a reputation for boldness and aggression, but also for a willingness to plunder and seize supplies off of the Canadian population that, especially in Canadian circles, became quite unsavory very quickly. Now, at Beaver Dams, he'd been one of the American officers pushing most for this attack because he thought that if they could remove just one or two of the British outposts around them, even if it didn't allow them to seize territory, they could still start up the kind of raiding expeditions that he'd previously run so successfully, ride and hit Canadian towns along the peninsula that weren't covered by the main body of the British army, and thereby demoralize the Canadian population and maybe get it to switch sides. After the battle, this really hurts his reputation. In point of fact, the next year, the Americans appoint a new general for a new invasion, General Jacob Brown, and he actually explicitly says, I trust that no one attached to my expedition will be like this Dr. Chapin. It really demonstrates how much he's fallen out of favor from the early part of the war. Does that change the American strategy? Is there less Americans raiding Canadian villages after this because of the failure of Chapin's original strategy? It's hard to determine. One factor is that the Americans get more confined to Fort George after this simply because the British seeing this victory, seeing that the Americans are on the back foot, start to draw their cordon of scouts closer and closer to prevent them from having freedom of movement. So it's hard to say whether they would have continued to raid if they had an opportunity, since they will have less of one. One thing we can say, though, is that the reputation that Dr. Chapin has gotten on the Canadian side and that he will continue to get later on in the war, will lead to a series of Canadian raids aimed at hitting American towns on the American side of the border as revenge, something that we don't see in earlier parts of the war. 
David, do you think going back to that original battle that Lieutenant Fitzgibbon would have been able to beat the Americans if he didn't have that information from Laura Secord? If he didn't know the Americans were coming, was he in trouble here? Could Lieutenant Fitzgibbon have won the Battle of Beaver Dams without the information that Laura Secord brought to him? That's a classic question of Canadian military history. In the 1930s, William Wallace, not the famous Scottish medieval revolutionary, but the famous Canadian historian. I think the one portrayed by Mel Gibson is slightly more famous, David. Somewhat more famous. Uh, Different circles, I would say. Different circles. But he argued in the 1930s that in point of fact, Laura Secord's communication didn't matter because the dates were unclear in the uh, most famous source written about this event, which is Lieutenant Fitzgibbons, by that time Colonel Fitzgibbons, letter of 1837, which he wrote to demonstrate that Laura Secord had actually come and given him information, as she claimed. But more recent scholarship has shown that actually there's an earlier letter from 1822, which which Colonel Fitzgibbon wrote for the same purpose, which Mr. Wallace didn't know about. And he actually makes it clear that Laura Secord arrived on the 22nd of June, and therefore he put out additional Native scouts who found out that the Americans were coming, and then he set up his ambush. If he hadn't set up an ambush, he definitely would have been in trouble. If the Americans could hit his base with artillery, he didn't have enough guys to stop them from winning. If he'd been lucky enough that his scouts had found about this raid on their own and was able to set up an ambush, who knows what would have happened. But we know that Laura Secord did bring this information and did give Fitzgibbon the warning he needed in order to win. So this information from this woman who owned a tavern in Niagara ends up helping Fitzgibbon to ambush the Americans and ultimately change the course of the War of 1812. Exactly. Quite the story, David. Thanks for telling us it. It is. It's an amazing story. And I'm just going to add two quick, somewhat related points onto the end of this story. So the first one is, we mentioned, or I mentioned, the petitions that Laura Secord wrote that are our best primary source of this incident. Now, she never got a military pension based on this, since she was not technically a soldier, of course. But I did want to mention that in 1860, so 50 years after this happened, the Prince of Wales was on a visit to Canada, heard about Mrs. Secord's petition, personally went, met with her, listened to her story from herself personally, and he gave her 100 pounds as a token of the king's gratitude. So that's something anyway. Better 100 pounds than nothing at all, I guess. Exactly. And the second point I want to make is that one of the reasons why this becomes one of the most famous stories of Canadian history, which it has become, is that in 1887, if I'm recalling correctly, there's published in Toronto 
a play based on Laura Secord's writings about the Battle of Beaver Dams. Now, what's interesting about that play, which becomes very famous in its time and really helps to popularize this incident as a specific moment of the War of 1812, and what's interesting about it is that the woman who writes it, Sarah Ann Curzon, is actually employed by the Dominion Women's Enfranchisement Association, one of the earliest suffragette groups in Canada, and she is deliberately drawing attention to Laura Secord in order to make a specific political point about women's deserving the right to vote. So this story would go on to have more implications in Canadian history, not just changing the course of the War of 1812, but going on to serve as part of the argument for women's voting rights. Exactly. And it, as it becomes famous, it gets more and more involved in a variety of Canadian political causes, and the story itself becomes more and more elaborate. You start to hear versions where, for example, Mrs. Secord brings along a cow while walking barefoot through the forest, which are not indicated in the primary sources and are, shall we say, somewhat unlikely. But they do indicate how the message resonates with generation after generation. Well, David, I think I'm getting hungry for some chocolate. So am I. Should we do a quick quiz before we take off for the day? With it being National Women's History Month in Canada, I do have a women's history quiz for you, David. All right. Well, let's hope I don't embarrass myself too badly. We'll start with the most recent question and work our way back through history with this quiz, David. And the first question is, who was the first female speaker of the house of representatives in the united states of america oh oh um i really don't know well this one is way more recent than you might think david it's nancy pelosi representative from california who became the speaker of the house of representatives after the november 2006 midterm elections so not that long ago at all i would not have believed it was that recent neil all right, moving back through history a little bit. What does Anne Frank call her diary? Um, I should know this, but I don't. She calls her diary Kitty. Kitty. All right. Who was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize? Was it Marie Curie? You are correct. It was Marie Curie. She and her husband Pierre won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1903. And in 1911, she won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, making her the first person to win a second Nobel Prize. All right, very good, David. Our next question, who had the shortest reign of any British monarch being Queen of England for just nine days? Lady Jane Grey, if I'm recalling correctly. You are correct. Lady Jane Grey was the Queen of England for just nine days after her father-in-law, John Dudley, plotted to make her queen so that his son could become king. 
Uh, Mary Tudor, the rightful heir to the throne, declared herself queen and had Jane executed. So it didn't end very well for Lady Jane Grey. All right, David, our final question. Who was Zenobia? Zenobia? We're going all the way back to the third century now. Ah, perhaps a queen of one of the kingdoms of modern Syria? She was the queen of Palmyra, a Roman trading center in the desert in the third century. So we'll chalk that up as a win for you, David. Good job on the quiz. Thank you. Hopefully everyone is enjoying National Women's History Month in Canada. Thanks for listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? If you want to reach us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, our handle is at when art thou. Our email is ohbrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com. And you can find us online at ohbrother.ca. Thanks for joining me, David. Always happy to be here, Neil. And thanks for listening.